tonight we're starting a new series. Uh, we finished Colossians last week. We took kind of a breather and heard from Steve and Tina. Um, we heard their testimony last week. And uh, tonight we're starting a new series called Out of Context. Um, and I think there's a, a thing on the screen if you, if you get there. Um, but I'm hoping that this is going to be a fun series because we're going to get into some Bible study in this series. Um, and that's sort of the goal because we just finished Colossians and I fully realized that you know, most of what we talked about in Colossians was just uber practical and that practical stuff kind of hit me hard. So I thought maybe we could use a bit of a break from the hard-hitting stuff while we continue to apply what we learned. And we're going to use that break for this month of April to take a look at a handful of difficult passages that people frequently take out of context to say things that the Bible just doesn't say, which is always fun to do if you approach the Word of God correctly. And tonight we're going to introduce the topic by simply discussing what context is. What does it mean to understand the Bible in context? What does it mean to take a passage or a verse out of context? Maybe it's been a while since you've been in an English class and you forget what the word context even means. Well, you're in luck because we're going to go over all that tonight. Um, so turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy 2.15. Uh, that's where we're going to be for tonight. And as you're turning, you know, let's start talking about context. What is context? Well, it always helps me to break the word down into two parts, con and text. Con in English frequently indicates that something goes with something else. You connect your phone to the Wi-Fi when you want to use the Wi-Fi. You have a conspiracy when someone secretly plots with someone else. A metal conducts electricity when the electricity freely flows within it. So you've got con and then you've got text and text just means text. Um, So when we talk about context, we're just talking about what goes with the text. What's going around the words or the texts that you're reading? Who's being written to? What's being discussed? You do this all the time, even even if you don't notice it. You know, when you're going through life, you're always making sure you understand the context when you're having conversations with people, whether those conversations are spoken or written down. For example, our trash can at home fills up pretty quickly. I feel like it's always full. And part of being married to Trisha means that I have to take out all the trash or it will just continue to pile up and, and to where the lid doesn't close and, and all that stuff. So if Trisha's leaving the house before I get home from work, let's say she texts me, the trash can is getting pretty full. I might respond with, uh-huh, or yep. And then she might say, would you take it out when you get home? And I'd say, sure. Well, there's plenty of opportunity for me to take what she said out of context. Maybe she gets home and sees a chair or something sitting outside. She asked me to take it out, but it can mean a lot of things. In context, I know the it she was referring to was the trash because she had just talked about that. Maybe she gets home and sees some throw pillows sitting in the driveway. She asked me to take out the trash, and I think throw pillows are essentially trash. (laughs) They're useless. But in context, I knew the trash that she was talking about was the trash in the trash can, not the throw pillows. So I have to sneak those in the trash. Maybe she gets home and sees the trash can still full of trash. She asks someone to take out the trash, but I don't know who the you is in that sentence. Who are, who are you asking to take out the trash? Because it couldn't be me. 
Well, in context, I knew that she was talking to me. She sent me a text to my phone number, and that's a silly example, but understanding things in context is clearly important because when you pull something out of context, you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean, and you can get rid of some throw pillows. (laughs) People get off base when they read something in the Bible and don't take the time to understand it in context. Because like the text messages about the trash, if you pull some words out of the Bible and don't understand what they mean in relation to the other words and sentences around them, sometimes you'll be able to claim the Bible means whatever you want it to mean. But we're interested in understanding what the Bible actually means in context because we care about what God says. And this, pas- and this verse in 2 Timothy uh, tells us how to do that. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And tonight we're just going to break down the two things that this verse tells us to do. It's going to be an easy night. Um, We're just going to kind of introduce this topic. But the first thing this verse tells us to do is to study. And the word study doesn't show up very much in the Bible. In fact, the only other time it shows up in the New Testament is 1 Thessalonians 4.11. It says, And that ye study to be quiet and, and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. And it's pretty clear here that studying to be quiet is a little bit different than what you and I think of when we use the word study. We normally think about sitting down at a desk, cracking open some books, taking notes, learning some things, preparing for a test. But in this case, in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's just referring to being diligent to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands. And that's something we should work on. That's what the Bible says. But we can run into some problems if we limit our understanding of the word study to just working on something. In fact, other modern Bible translations actually remove the word study from 2 Timothy 2.15, and they replace it with that understanding of of what uh, study is meaning in 1 Thessalonians 4. The NIV or the ESV say, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. The NASB says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. The NLT says, work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Even the NKJV says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. The KJV is the only English translation of the Bible that tells you to study it. And while it's true that we should work hard to show ourselves approved unto God, and, you know, if you, if you dig into the Greek word that's translated as study, it's translated in other places as be diligent or to do your best. But the KJV's command to study tells us how we can present ourselves unto God, whereas the other translations don't tell you how to do that. Think about it. If all the verse said was to do your best to present yourself approved to God, how would you know what to do? How would you go about presenting yourself approved to God? God, what do you want me to do? Do your best. Okay, but what should I actually do? Well, be diligent. Try hard. At what? If all the verse tells us is that we have to work hard to be approved unto God, then we're not left with any real instructions. That command to study, which is found only in the KJV, gives you some specific thing to do so that you can present yourself approved unto God, so you can show yourself approved unto God. Without that specific command, we're just left wondering and we're left hoping that whatever it is we're doing, whatever that might be, is going to allow us to be approved by God. But the use of that word study and our understanding of the English word involving books and literature and absorbing information, that lines up with what we see in other parts of Scripture. John 5.39 says, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. 
Jeff mentioned this verse on Sunday. The Jewish leaders had access to the Old Testament scriptures, with, which foretold many things about Jesus Christ. So Jesus tells them to sit down and search those scriptures so that they could find those references to him. That's studying. Keep in mind, Jesus was claiming to be God in human flesh, but he didn't want them to just simply take his word for it. He wanted them to do their own research in the scriptures so they could prove to themselves that what he was saying was true. Another example of this idea of studying can be found in Acts 17, verses 10 and 11. It says, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So these people in Berea were called more noble than the people in Thessalonica because they understood the importance of the words of God. So when someone preached to them, they didn't just accept what was being preached as truth because the guy behind the pulpit was saying things. They searched the scriptures to make sure that what the preacher was saying was true. They studied the scriptures to make sure what someone was saying lined up with the written words of God. And if what someone told them didn't line up with the written words of God, they knew the preacher was wrong because they knew that the word of a preacher doesn't outrank the word of God. They understood that the scriptures were authoritative. And that's important. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So scripture, the Bible that you hold in your hand, is the very word of God. That's why we need to study it. Because the world is full of people saying a lot of things. And some of those people are even saying that the things that they claim are from God. And some of those people are even using the Bible to prove that God is saying whatever they're saying. But it's our job to search the scriptures. It's our job to study the words of God. We do that so we can separate the right preachers from the wrong preachers. And I'm not even talking about separating the good preachers from the bad preachers because if the most well-intending preacher claims that the Bible is saying incorrect things, then they're not doing their job to study. Nobody's perfect. That's why we can't rely on preachers or teachers, flawed men, to tell us what to believe. We have to study God's word so that when someone tells us something, we can check whether or not it's true before we decide to blindly believe it. But not only does 2 Timothy 2.15 tell us we need to study, that verse even tells us how to study the Bible. And we'll get to that in the next point. But studying clearly involves more than just reading the Bible. You have to dig through it, know what it says, so that you can live your life by it and allow the Bible to be your ultimate authority. You have to learn it for yourself so you don't rely on others to know it for you. And yes, that takes work. That's why 2 Timothy 2.15 calls a person who studies a workman. But the work is worth it. It's how you show yourself approved to God so you don't have to be ashamed. And no, this series isn't going to turn you into an expert Bible studier. That takes time and study. Between discipleship, MTT, and LFBI, you've got, you know, six, roughly six years of training and teaching that can help you get better and better at studying and applying God's word in your life if you choose to take advantage of it. I would encourage you to, because studying the Bible is a lifelong pursuit. If you're doing life right, you're never going to put that book down. I mean, imagine things from God's perspective. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, 
for instruction in righteousness. So scripture was given to man by the inspiration of God. It wasn't just a bunch of stories that mankind made up and wrote down. God inspired it. That's why it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. But God didn't just stop when he gave us his words by inspiration. He also preserved those words for us living today. Psalm 12, 6 and 7 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Man, what a promise that is. We can know that we still hold in our hands the very words of God because they're pure words and he will preserve them and keep them forever. He promised to preserve them for us. And in case it isn't obvious, he gave us his words so we could know what he says. That's how he communicates to us. He gave us his very words. And so at any point in time that you want access to God's words, all you gotta do is open a book. You don't want to get to the end of your life and not know what God says. You don't want to have lived your life as though you don't know what he says because he gave us his words. So if you want to be ashamed before him, man, you set those words down and don't give them a second thought. But if you don't want to be ashamed, like 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us we can avoid, if you want to be approved by God, pick that book up, learn to study it so you can know it for yourself and know what God's words say. And you can do that by point number two, and that's to rightly divide. 2 Timothy 2.15 ends by telling you how to study by rightly dividing the word of truth. That's going to clue you in on how we go about understanding the context so we can understand what God's words are specifically saying. And again, like the command to study, other Bible translations remove this instruction. Modern translations, other than the NKJV, say, you know, they'll say accurately, rightly, or, or correctly handling the word of truth, rather than rightly dividing it. And again, that doesn't actually tell you what to do. How should I handle the word of truth? Well, correctly. That's like teaching a kid to ride a bike by giving him a bicycle and telling him, okay, ride this correctly. You've got to show him how to do it. When the KJV tells you how to handle the word of God correctly, it tells you how to study it, and you do that by rightly dividing it. And that's important, because some people don't divide it. Like Steve was talking about last week with their previous church, that they believed the whole Bible. And yeah, we're to believe the whole Bible. It's the words of God, remember? But understand that there are divisions that need to be made in order to understand it properly. Because God said different things to different people at different times throughout history. And it's our job to study all of that so we can understand the context when we read something in a particular passage of Scripture. So the things that Israel was commanded to do in the Old Testament, for example, those don't directly apply as commandments to us living in the New Testament today. We're not Israel. You ever wonder why we don't sacrifice animals to God? Because the whole book of Leviticus is about all these sacrifices that you're supposed to do for God. Ever wonder why we don't celebrate Jewish holidays and festivals? The Bible says to do those things, but it doesn't tell us to do those things. That's why we need to divide God's word, not so we can throw part of it out. It's all good. But remember, 2 Timothy 3.16 said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, so it's all profitable, so we have no business ignoring any of it. We divide it so that we can understand all of it correctly. That's how you correctly handle the word of truth. But not only are we told to divide it, we're told to rightly divide it. 
which indicates that it's possible to wrongly divide it. So we need to be careful about how we divide it and make sure we're doing it according to Scripture. And that's we have an entire class in MTT devoting to, devoted to teaching people how to study the Bible. Some of you are probably in that right now. And in that class, you can learn various rules of Bible study, and one of those rules is to understand the context that a passage or verse was written in. And that's so important to do, because if you don't, you can take a particular verse out of context and sometimes make it mean, what or make it say whatever you want it to, whatever you want it to mean. But like I've been saying, we don't want to do that. We want to know what God is saying, not us. And to do that, we have to rightly divide his words so we can properly understand it. That's what he tells us to do, so that's what we're going to base our understanding of the Bible on. And that's what we're going to do in this series. We're going to look at some verses and passages that people frequently make say something that they don't say. They pull them out of context. They don't rightly divide the word. But if you take some time to study a passage and understand it clearly, you'll figure out pretty quickly that it's normally not difficult to do. It just takes some work. It takes some time. Because like I said, God wants us to know what he says. That's why he gave us the Bible. But let's spend some time briefly talking about some of the types of divisions that we see God making in the Bible. And as we study scripture, we respect those divisions so we don't pull things out of context. Now, we're only going to go through three of the major types of divisions. There are, there are many. I don't even know that I know all of them. And by going through these quickly, I don't expect anyone to immediately become experts on divisions or anything like that. This stuff takes time to sink in. It takes practice. So my goal tonight is just to make you aware that these different types of divisions exist so that as we continue this series into the various passages, we can recognize these divisions as they apply to the verse. But I wanted to go over them briefly tonight so you can start to wrap your head around what the Bible is saying when it tells us to rightly divide the word of truth. And the first type of division is something we've talked about a lot in here recently, and that's letter A, the three applications. Everything you find in Scripture is going to have at least three applications, the historical, the doctrinal, and the practical applications. The historical application just answers the question, what is the Bible teaching me about what happened in history? The Bible's a history book, but it's a history book written by God. So the events that are recorded in it are recorded with 100% accuracy. Why would God inspire false historical information? God can't lie. So when we read a verse or passage, you know, we do well to stop and think about what was going on historically at the time. The doctrinal application, that answers the question, what deeper truth is the Bible teaching me, especially about the future? When it comes to studying the Bible, this is probably the most important one because this is where God reveals a lot of truth. And it frequently requires the most study to properly determine and it's frequently prophetic in nature. It's one of the reasons why it's, it's difficult. Doctrinal truths are, are the big important truths that guide the church in understanding who God is. And on some occasions, a particular passage might even have more than one doctrinal application, and that's where things tend to get tricky. But you've got the doctrinal, the historical, and you've got the practical application, sometimes called the devotional application. And that just answers the question, what is God wanting me to apply from this study to my life? This is where you're trying to determine how to change your life today as a result of what you're, of, of what you're studying. These on, and there's normally going to be many practical applications of a particular passage, and uh, it might apply differently to some people than to others, just depending on where you're at in life. You know, as you're reading through the scripture, God can use that to communicate all kinds of things to you just based on your circumstances and stuff like that. But all three of these applications are important. 
And keep in mind that even though they're different, they're all going to work together. A verse is never going to have a practical application that goes contrary to doctrine, for example. Um, you know, it's not going to tell you to go off and do something that, that the doctrine of the church, like from the Bible, is clearly teaching otherwise. And it's important to not miss any of these three while you're studying because they all fit together. Because the more you can get about a verse and how these different applications fit together, the more fully you're going to understand the verse. Too often you hear people preaching only about the practical application and totally miss the doctrinal application. And when they do that, that normally means that they're not even getting that right. Because if you're, if you're studying only the practical side of things and not even looking at the doctrinal side of things, you're not getting a full understanding of the passage. So my encouragement to you on this point is, if you haven't already, start thinking about these three applications while you're reading the Bible. What's this passage saying about history? What's this passage teaching or prophesying about the future? And how can I apply this to my life? Man, that's a good exercise to go through every morning when you get up and, and, and even just read. And even, even if you haven't started studying yet, man, you can just start studying like that. And let's look at the next division. I told you we're going to go through these quickly. Uh, letter B, three groups of people. I've often heard someone say, um, the whole Bible was written for us, but it wasn't all written to us. And that's a true statement. Uh, All scripture is profitable for us, but that doesn't mean every command in scripture is a direct command from God to us. Essentially, we need to understand that God addresses three groups of people in scripture, meaning any particular passage is written to one of these groups on your sheet, or, you know, potentially more. Uh, First one's the nation of Israel. That's God's chosen nation, which are descended from Abraham. He made some very particular promises to Abraham, and some very specific commands to the nation of Israel. The next one's the Gentile nations. That's any nation other than Israel. And then you have the church. Those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior have joined this new group of people. And you, you might remember from Colossians 3.11 that the church, in the church there is no, neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free. So once you're part of the church, the Bible doesn't consider you to be Jew or Gentile. You're saved, you're part of the family of God, your biblical destiny changes. And in scripture, you see passages written to one or more of these three groups. And it's important to keep that in mind as you're reading or studying because frequently people will take a passage written to Israel out of context and apply it directly to themselves as a member of the church, which is never a good idea. There was this little event in history, you might have heard of it, it's called the Crusades. The, the Catholic Church decided that a lot of Israel's promises in the Old Testament belonged to them, so they fought some of the most violent wars and killed and raped a ton of people to conquer the Holy Land, land which was never supposed to belong to any church, much less the Catholic Church. It belonged to Israel. But you take those promises that God made to Israel out of context and think that they belong to the church, well, you're going to end up getting pretty violent. So you need to make sure you know who's being written to. All you have to do to do that normally is just look around the verse you're reading for clues as to which people group uh, the the passage is directed to. Um, And we'll see some of that as we get into these passages uh, in the coming weeks. And the last type of division we're going to talk about is dispensations. That's a big word. I promise we're not going to spend too much time here. Um, But dispensations and dispensationalism, those are important to talk about even if you don't like saying them because they're really long. 
The only way to treat the Bible literally and understand it consistently from cover to cover is to understand dispensationalism. And so I promise I'm not going to communicate the entire truth of dispensationalism to you. That takes a lot of time. But the gist of it is God's mission throughout the Bible is setting up his kingdom on this earth with Jesus as king. That's the theme of the entire book of the Bible from start to finish. But how he goes about accomplishing that changes at different times throughout history. It has to, because mankind fails at every turn to do exactly what God asks of us, how he asks us to do it. And anytime we see a clear difference in the Bible in how God is dispensing his grace to man, that's where that word comes from. Dispensation is just a way that God dispenses his grace to man. We consider that to be a different dispensation. And all the commandments and instructions that go along with that should be expected to change as well. So God always offers his grace to mankind, but he changes how he packages that grace at different times throughout the Bible. And don't expect to be an expert on these tonight. Again, I just want, I just want to go through them so you can start thinking dispensationally and so you can be aware that you should expect God's message to mankind to change at various points in the Bible. And this is going to be key because there's a lot of things that God promises to certain people at certain times that if we try to make them about us, we get off base. And so you need to be aware that you should expect that, that to change. That's a, particular, or a perfectly normal thing to see. So we're going to breeze through these, and I mean, we're going to we're going to breeze right through them. So if you don't catch everything, man, don't feel bad because really, it's, I just put them on your sheet so you can know they exist. Um, and what I put on your sheet is, is the traditional teaching that there are seven dispensations throughout human history. You're not going to find a chapter and verse that say, here are, here are the dispensations. Um, dispensation is actually a biblical word. Paul talks about having a dispensation committed unto him. But some people teach that there are different numbers of things, and I'm not, I'm not here to say that any person is wrong about that. The point is, God changes how he interacts with humans throughout history, throughout biblical history, and um, here are some ways you can start to recognize that. The first one is typically called the dispensation of innocence, and that's what you see you know, in the first couple chapters of Genesis. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God put them there. They had no sin nature to get in their way of their relationship with God. And God in his grace freely offered them the fruit of every tree in the garden and their only commandment was to not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God never told us to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of evil because there's, there's no tree around that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was in the Garden of Eden. But Adam and Eve failed that and when they failed that, God changed how he dispensed his grace to man. He had to because sin was now in the picture. And that led to number two, the dispensation of conscience. And that's what you see in the next couple chapters. This is from Adam's sons all the way to Noah. God had asked Adam and Eve to have sons and daughters to fill the earth. But sin and corruption had started to ruin that, even as far as some weird stuff about angels having half-breed offspring with human women, which polluted the line of sons and daughters that were to fill the earth. And this failure led to God flooding the entire planet. And then God shifted again how his grace was packaged. And this is where human government comes in, which, which led to the Tower of Babel. And again, God commanded Noah and his sons 
Uh, it, his commandment to them was the same as the commandment that was given to Adam and Eve, to populate the entire earth with sons and daughters. Remember, God wants a kingdom, and a kingdom takes people. So people were to spread out, and mankind was to establish governments to rule and keep order. But rather than spreading out over the whole planet, a large portion of humanity clustered in one place against God. That's, that was the Tower of Babel. They were working together to try to get to heaven on their own. And that, fail, that failure resulted in God scattering them and confounding their language. When they wouldn't spread out, God forced them to. So again, God changes how he's offering his grace. And this is where the dispensation of promise comes in um, for Abraham. Uh, rather than just working with, with the sons of Noah and the earth in general, he s- starts shifting to one man, uh, which became one family and one nation. God offered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob completely unconditional promises to make a great nation out of them. They didn't have to do anything. God just blessed them. And he gave them land that they were supposed to dwell in. But they failed when they went to Egypt. They went to escape a famine, which was fine. But after the famine was over, you remember the the movie with Joseph and the corn and all that stuff. Um, After the famine was over, they stayed. Rather than going back to the land that God set apart from them, they stayed in Egypt. And that led to them being enslaved. So God, again, had to change how he, dis- he, how he gave his grace to them. It wasn't going to be conditional any longer. And this is where the dispensation of the law comes in, which is what we typically think of when we think about the Old Testament. God brought Israel out of Egypt and gave them the law through Moses. He gave them a very strict moral and legal code involving animal sacrifices for their sins on a regular basis. As long as they followed the law, they would have the blessings of God. This started with the tabernacle and eventually ended with the temple in Jerusalem. Israel became a great nation under David and Solomon, just like God had promised to Abraham in those unconditional promises. But soon after Solomon was gone, the kingdom split because of bad rulers who didn't follow the law. There was a bunch of fighting between each other, between other nations. Eventually, the kingdom was placed under the rule of the Gentiles, so God's chosen nation wasn't the major world power that it once was. And that brings us to the dispensation of grace, which is what Jesus offered with his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what we just celebrated on Easter. The animal sacrifices and other laws aren't necessary anymore because Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice once for all to cover the sins of every man. Today we get God's grace by getting saved, and we're saved by grace through faith alone. We don't have works that we have to do. We don't have any maintenance that we have to do with sacrifices or anything like that. He doesn't require us to do any works now, but he does require us to believe in his sacrifice and confess that he's our Lord. And he gives us, the church, the job of reaching the world with the gospel. But we'll fail at that too. As Christianity gets weaker and weaker and stops preaching the gospel, a process that's already started. You look at some of these mega church pastors who just are, are seeker friendly and, and don't want to treat the Bible like it's authoritative and don't want to tell people that hell exists. Um, man, you're, you're losing the ability to preach the word of God when, when you're setting the word of God aside. And so some of those unconditional, or I'm sorry, so that's our job, and we're gonna, the church in, in general is gonna fail at it. Hopefully, we as individuals and we as a local church don't, but the church in general is going to fail at that. But today, God is only working on, his, on the spiritual side of his kingdom. He's not working on the physical side of his kingdom like he was with Israel in the Old Testament. That physical kingdom's on pause, but that doesn't mean God's done with it yet. 
Some of those unconditional promises that God made to Abraham have yet to be fulfilled, and they'll be fulfilled in the seventh one, the dispensation of the kingdom. And this is the one that hasn't happened yet, but it will happen when Jesus returns. He'll rule and reign as a king over a physical and spiritual kingdom on this earth. And this will happen when the tribulation of the nation of Israel is over. After the book of Revelation, um, it's, it's prophesied throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. Uh, this, is, this is the end goal of God setting up his kingdom uh, on this earth. And those of us who accepted Jesus' salvation will be ruling and reigning with him. And at this point in history, faith will actually be no longer necessary because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Jesus Christ will be on the earth bodily in glory. Nobody has to believe in Jesus. He's right there. You can see him with your eyes. And so God's grace, how he offers that to mankind, changes yet again because he's with us on on this earth. Um, Everybody's going to see him for who he is. So that was the quickest overview of the Bible I have ever said out loud, but that was from start to finish. Um, how How you doing? That was like a crash course, high level overview. And I know there's a lot to unpack there, but don't feel like you're behind if that didn't all click with you right away. We had an entire conference on dispensations and dispensationalism a few years ago, so forgive my quick run-through. But, but I felt the need to actually go through that because my goal in going through them was just to make you aware that they exist and to make sure you're aware that God has changed the way he interacts with and offers his grace to mankind throughout history. Because if you're ever going to get handles on the Bible, you've got to understand that as you're reading and as you're studying. And keep in mind that what I went through, again, is just how they're traditionally taught. You might see them taught differently, but the idea is the same. God changes how he dispenses his grace to humans throughout history, not only in the past, but also in the future. And the other important thing to keep in mind, sorry, is that those chapters I listed with each of those, those are just guidelines. There's no hard and fast like this one starts, this one stops, then this one starts immediately, then this one stops. Um, There's some room for transition between them, especially when you're talking about the law and grace. The whole book of Acts is a transitional book between those two. And we'll, we'll actually see that next week as we look at one of those verses in Acts that people sometimes take out of context. But the point of understanding the three applications of Scripture, the three different people groups that God deals with, and and stuff like dispensations is to help you get the context of a particular passage before you run off thinking God's saying something he's not saying. We have the entire book of the Bible that we can use in our study of a particular passage, and we can use that to do what 1 Corinthians 2.13 says when it says comparing spiritual things with spiritual We have to study. We have to get cross-references. We have to compare Scripture with Scripture, all to learn what the Bible's saying. Because 2 Peter 1.20 says, no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. So we don't get to just decide what the Bible means. That's not up to you. That's not up to me. We have to figure out what it says. And that takes study, and that takes work. And then once we figure out what it says, we go with that. That's why we do what Isaiah 28, 10 through 13 indicates uh, when we should be teaching precept upon precept, line upon line, verse by verse. Because the Bible all fits together if we take time to understand it and study it and figure out how it fits together. 
We let the Bible define and explain itself because it's the authority, not us. And for fun, we'll just end tonight with looking at some examples of verses that are taken out of context to mean something else. We won't spend too much time on these because these are, uh, these are pretty simple ones. Psalm 51.11 is one example. It says, Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. That sounds like God could take his Holy Spirit from you. Should we be asking God to not take his Holy Spirit from us? Well, no. We have eternal life with God. We know from the New Testament we're sealed by his Holy Spirit. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But in Psalm 51, David is talking, who lived way before Jesus was, uh, was, had his death, burial, and resurrection. And he was living in the Old Testament under the law when God's blessings and forgiveness were conditional on your adherence to the law. So don't think that verse directly applies to you because if you do, when you sin and screw up like David did, you might worry a little bit about God taking his Holy Spirit from you when the Bible's clear that that's something we never have to worry about. Praise the Lord. Lamentations 3.26, this is one of my favorites. It says, It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Is that what we should do? We should just hope and quietly wait for God to save us? Well, no, Romans 10, 9, and 10 tell us to confess with our mouth and believe in our heart. We don't have to wait for salvation. We can have it right now. And in context, the salvation Jeremiah is talking, was writing about wasn't salvation from sin, death, and hell. He was talking about salvation from difficult circumstances. All you have to do is read the verses prior to that. There's 25 verses in Lamentations 3 before you get to Lamentations 3.26. That's how numbers work. And if you read those you get the idea that he's, he's talking about something other than what we understand uh, as New Testament salvation from the gospel. So don't assume that when you see the word salvation that you're necessarily talking about the gospel. You have to understand it in context. 1 John 3.15 says, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. And I've seen this one used a lot in evangelism to try to convince someone that they've broken the Ten Commandments. You know, the, the, the shtick is like, well, you've told a lie, right? Well, you've broken the Ten Commandments. You've, you've stolen something probably, right, that you've broken the Ten Commandments. Well, have you ever killed anybody? No, I've never killed anybody. Well, have you hated anybody? Because the Bible says if you hate, if you hate somebody, then, then you're a murderer. You know, you're, you're a liar, you're a thief, you're an adulterer and a murderer at heart, that guy. Um, so... His name's Ray Comfort. Um, that's lazy evangelism. As much as, as much as that guy's heart is in the right place, it's lazy. And it's not, not to mention inaccurate. First of all, that word, or that verse uses the word brother. So even if this verse was written to the church, it would be talking about our brothers in Christ. So it wouldn't be for lost people anyways. But again, this is written to a Jewish audience near the end of the tribulation where Jews have the opportunity to sell out and turn on each other. 1 John 3, 7 describes a work-based system of salvation that's very different from the gospel offered to us today. So don't take something out of context just because it sounds good or preaches well. And that's what you'll see a lot. If something sounds good or hits heavy or something like that, man, somebody will just go with that, even when it's not biblically correct. I mean, and, and think about it. What if you told someone that the Bible calls them a murderer because they've hated someone? 
that hits them hard enough that they decide to get saved because they feel so guilty that, that the Bible calls them a murderer. What happens when they study that passage later on and find out the reason they got saved was an inaccurate understanding of the verse? Man, that would, that would bug me. So just think about that. Like, you know, obviously it's great that someone's saved, but like you can rock someone's world if they find out that a reason they made a decision was inaccurate. And those are just some quick examples, and, and we're going we're gonna to be done for tonight. But uh, we're going to dig into some pretty fun passages in this series. And again, the point is to not make everyone in here experts in Bible study. That's a goal to shoot for. We should all strive to be experts in Bible study. But I'd be kidding myself if I thought we could do that in four weeks. The series is just to pique your interest. Hopefully, in examining some of these out-of-context passages, you might realize how much fun Bible study is when you do it correctly and how cool it is when you can study for yourself what God says and you can learn truth directly from God's words. And if you realize how fun it is when you do it correctly, man, maybe you'll consider, uh, seriously consider what you need to do to get better at it. Because these words that we hold in our hands, man, they're the words of God. He gave them to us so we can know what he says. So let's not waste our lives not knowing what he says. We've had, we have access to him at all times. So man, let's study. Let's rightly divide the word of truth. Um, this is gonna be a fun study. So God, we thank you so much, man, for just... For, for your words, it's an amazing thing to think that the God of the universe, the, the supreme being who created everything, man, you want us to know what you say. You didn't just put us here on this earth and leave us guessing at what makes you happy and what you, what you want from our lives. You gave us clear, specific instructions and, and we can spend our lives figuring out what those are and studying them so that we can better understand them and so that we can know you. Man, you don't get to know somebody unless you talk to them and and, and let them talk to you. And God, we want you to talk to us. And we want to talk to you. We want to have conversations. We want to know what it is you say so that we can live our lives the way you'd have us live them. And God, I just pray that as we look at some of these passages um, as just examples of, of how to take things in context and how to understand your word in context so that everything fits together and we don't stumble over things that seem like contradictions. God, I just pray that we'd be able to continue that process for in our entire lives and that we'd uh, just take seriously whatever we need to do in order to, to get better at it and to be diligent and in studying your word and comparing scripture with scripture and, and just understanding your words in context so we can be certain that we know what it is you say for us. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.